turned out fabulous. Um, everybody worked so hard to put it together, and it came, and it came off beautifully. So it might, <laughs> it might rain again at the end of July. So, you know, <laughs> look forward to that. <laughs> But you know what was really what was really amazing, and this always seems to happen or seems to happen quite frequently. It was raining off and on off and on as we were preparing in the morning, and then once church started, sun came out, no rain until after church was over, and then we were eating, and then it all started raining again, and the rain came. But during the time of church, we had sun, so you know God was just handling things the way he always does and it was it was perfect so um tonight at five o'clock there's going to be a graveside service for rick meese at the elmwood cemetery which is 1175 17 and a quarter road in case you're wondering so uh the family would invite you to go to that five o'clock this evening and um I think that is everything. Kids can go to class, and everything's wonderful. It's good to see all your faces here, and we just are going to hear a great word from Pastor Phil, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for loving us, and we just thank you for all that you've done for for us, and we thank you for the gift of our church, Lord, and the people here, and the love that we all have for you, and that we come together and worship, and learn, and listen, and love on each other, and Lord, I just thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I did forget to mention the little handy-dandy tear-off tab on the bulletin. If you have a prayer request, you can write it on this. Drop the in the little black box in the back. Or um, if you have tithes and offerings, little black box. It's a very fabulous, multi-purpose black box. So, so, and if you want to communicate with leadership in any other way, you can also write a note on the little handy-dandy tear-off and drop it in the black box. All right. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. How's everybody? Have an okay week, everybody? I know it was. I know ups and downs and the the travels and the yeah. Um, let's pray real quick. Like about to dive into our word here, and let's um, let's offer this up in prayer. Father God, thank you for another beautiful morning here in Western Colorado. Thank you that we get to gather together in your name. Thank you for your word. We have it open here in front of us, and Father, we just ask that you fill us, that you fill this place, that you come close to us, that you breathe out into us, that, Father, that you would draw us closer to you, that we would be equipped and prepared to go out into the world for tomorrow, that through our time that we have together, the time that we have in your word, that we would be better equipped for you. We ask all of that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the word that you gave to the world. Amen. 
We are in John chapter 16. We are in verses 1 through 15. This is kind of a a hybrid message. It's not... um, you know the usual stuff, and I will I will put a caveat. There's there's four sections to the to the message today. The first part we're going to talk about Pentecost. The second part we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. The third part we're going to talk about love and hate. The last part, the master and slave part, is going to have some very harsh language in it. Um, so just be prepared ahead of that. You know if you get through part three and you don't want to sit through part four, I completely understand. Um, so you know just FYI, if and that, that I'm being very earnest and very serious there that. Um, if that's going to be an uncomfortable part that we're going to go through some parts in the, in the Bible. And if you want to leave after section three, I'm not going to be offended at all. It's going to be some, some tough stuff there. So I um, wanted to, to put that out there, the spoiler alert or the warning ahead of time, the, the, you know, the little box at the top that tells you how this one's rated, this one's rated. You may not want to watch part, three or part four there. All right, so we're going to start actually in John chapter 15 and 18 through 27, which was what we did a, a few weeks ago. And then we're going to roll right through John 16, verses 1 through 15. And the reason is these are all tied together. Jesus gives this dissertation on persecution and the Holy Spirit. They're they're interweaved together. So we're going to start, like I say, with John chapter 15, 18 through 27, and roll right through our verse through this week, which is 16, 1 through 15. It says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me. They will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father... The spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. 
All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. If we were to fast forward in your Bible to after, uh, after the resurrection, to Pentecost, to 50 days after Passover, it's in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So again, our, our themes for today, we're going to start off talking about Pentecost. Then we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, which is largely a review. And then we're going to talk about love and hate. And then the last section is that one I warned you about, which is the master and slave section. So at Pentecost, right, this is the question. We always wonder, why don't we see the Holy Spirit manifest like we do in Acts? Why don't we see that now? That's always the burning question that Christians have is, Man, we, see, we read about this in the Bible, we these tongues of fire. People seem to physically have some sort of a change when the Holy Spirit is filled. If we flipped over to Acts chapter 8, we would see that the Spirit had not yet filled some people until the, the disciples get there, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we wonder, like, gosh, is that something that I should expect to have happen to me as a believer? And the answer is no, because this is... God authenticating the new church. Just like when God led the Israelites out of Egypt, there was a pillar of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We're going to grab the verses here in just a moment. Those didn't stay forever. They were there to lead and to guide and to authenticate that they were being led by God. Because otherwise, you, you, you have the, the signs, you have the, the plagues, but otherwise it's just Moses and Aaron saying, no, we're going this way. No, we're going this way. And they're like, who's that guy, right? But it's authenticated by God. God authenticates his promise and his covenant to his people and leads them. And he leads them actually for quite a long time in kind of a big circle in the wilderness instead of taking them straight to the promised land. And that's right here in, um, in Exodus. But this festival, this Pentecost, it's 50 days. It's what penta means, it's 50. It means 50 days after the Passover. It's the festival of first fruits. It's a one-day festival. And the idea is if you've done your early spring planting, you're getting your, your first bits coming up out of the ground. It's the festival of first fruits. It's a time, a day of celebration of the harvest that is to come. So my boys and I, we've been trying to get grass planted in our backyard. And it's been a lot of work. It's been a lot of hand digging and tilling and, and raking and getting things leveled out. And then we put, you know, the grass seed down. We had to put in a bunch of topsoil and, and do all of this stuff. Yeah, so it was like three weeks of watering twice a day, and we didn't have anything. <laughs> and I think they were going to revolt. I think there was definitely going to be a revolt of, like, we did all of this work and nothing, Dad, really? But then finally the grass, it's starting to come up. It's, it's patchy. It's not quite right. I, clearly I, I am not an expert gardener. I've told you I have a black thumb. But finally we're starting to see this grass come up. And that's this kind of moment of celebration. When we see that new life coming up out of the earth, we get that first harvest. That's what taking a time to, to commemorate that, to celebrate that. It's right over here in Exodus 34, 22. It says, celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest 
and the festival of ingathering in the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord, your God. It says, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord, your God. So we're going to start off with this picture, this Pentecost picture. It's a picture of salvation. It's a great way to think about things. So you have the Jews. They're not, they're not meant to live in Egypt. They went down there because of a famine. They're not meant to be there, though. That's not their home. It's the first thing. When we think about ourselves here on earth, this is not our home. They were slaves in Egypt. And we're going to talk about that at the end. But they were slaves. They were held there against their will. They were powerless in that. They had to be helped to be freed from that slavery. So God had to do the work. He had to send Moses. He had to send the ten plagues and then get them freed from slavery. But their part of it right, was Passover. The angel is coming. So what did they have to do? They had to blood of the lamb and they had to eat of the meal of, Pent of, the, of Passover to partake in being freed from slavery. And that released them then to enter into the promised land. So to be free of slavery in Egypt, the people had to participate in the Passover. They had to be covered by the blood of the lamb, and they had to have eaten that Passover meal. Then God's spirit guided them with that cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. It says in Exodus chapter 13, verses 22 through 22, this is exactly where we find that. It says, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to guide them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar or the cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So at Pentecost, God, the Holy Spirit, visibly authenticates the church and the new covenant in a way that is meaningful to the witnesses. It is also a fulfillment of John 15 and 16. Jesus says, stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And here it is. We just read about how Jesus said, I'm going to send the advocate. I'm going to send the advocate. I'm going to send my Spirit. And here it is. Fifty days later, the Spirit comes. So for us to be delivered from our bondage to sin, to be delivered from our slavery to sin, we must, must be covered by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ. We must partake of the sacred meal, the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. And when we take communion, we remember, we celebrate the last summer, supper and we proclaim the new covenant, the new promise. Christ's body broken for us and Christ's blood shed for us. It's in John chapter, 60, chapter 6, 48 through 58. It says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless... Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. So whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. If we were to look down the page just a little bit, Jesus explains what he means. Jesus says he is looking for people who believe in him and who remain in him. That's what he says, is whoever abides in me, whoever remains in me, whoever perseveres in me, whoever believes in me and whoever perseveres in me is partaking of the blood and the flesh of Christ. When we believe and when we live in Christ, when we continue to live in Christ, we eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. He says we must, we must do that. So when we love God and when we love others and when we obey, our spirits are fed. Our mission, our fellowship, our time in the Bible, our communion, our prayer, all of those are spirit-nourishing activities. They are outward signs of what is in our hearts. Those external activities should be the fruits of the love for God in our hearts. Now be sure there are malnourished Christians, people who confess Christ but do not love and do not obey. There are also false Christians, people who participate in mission and fellowship and Bible study and communion and prayer, but they do not have a love for God in their hearts. But this is the picture of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit consecrating and proclaiming this new church. So let's talk a minute about the Holy Spirit. And like I said, this is largely a review. We won't spend a whole lot of time on this. But the Holy Spirit is invisible. He takes the form of a dove or a pillar of fire or cloud or smoke, not a person. If we were to compare that to God the Father, God the Father has a body. It's not like our body. You know, it says no one has ever seen the Father. We cannot be in his holy presence and still exist. Even the angels who worship him cover their faces in his presence. But he has hands and feet and eyes. If we were to flip over to Exodus chapter 33, right? It's when the Lord passes by and he says, I will put my hand and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. So God has a body of some kind. Though clearly it's not like ours. But he has hands and feet and a face and a back. Right? And then we think about Jesus. Jesus took the form of a man, of a fleshly man. He was born of woman, born of a virgin. He humbled himself. He was born as a baby. He had to learn how to walk and talk. He learned. He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. And that's exactly what it says in Luke 2.52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And ultimately, he humbled himself by going to the cross. Philippians 2.8 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, for anyone who says that Jesus isn't God, I throw show you Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. We're going to argue over that word in just a little bit, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, in verse 7, that by taking the very nature of a servant, scratch that word out and put the word slave there. Scratch that out. Put slave there. He lived a perfect, sinless life and then died the death we deserved so that we could have the converse, this conversation today, so that we could have redemption. The Holy Spirit does not have a body and only speaks the words that are given to him by the Father and the Son. Both God the Father and Jesus speak. But Jesus says that he serves the Father, that he is always doing the Father's will. John actually calls Jesus the Word. But the Spirit always points towards the Son and the Father. Romans 8, 26-27 says this. It says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Jesus is called Emmanuel. It means God with us. Jesus, Yeshua, the Son of God, embodied God here on earth. God with us. The Holy Spirit, in contrast, is the parakletos, the called alongside one, the helper, the comforter, the advocate. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2 through 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Holy Spirit is equal part of the triune God, and he is invisible. But he is called alongside to help, to advocate, to comfort, and to intercede. That is the person of the Holy Spirit. So let's just look at him in Scripture. If we were to flip over to Luke chapter 3, it's right here when, when God proclaims Jesus. We were just talking about this. It says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Two witnesses testifying that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. We just read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when the Holy Spirit came as a fire. And then we talked about Acts chapter 8, when, when the disciples came, the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Descends like a dove, wind, tongues of fire. Helper and advocate, Publicly announcing the will of God. Publicly announcing Jesus as the Messiah. Publicly announcing the new covenant, the new church. And God is speaking to these people in a way that is meaningful to them. They're all Jews that are there. So when this pillar of fire comes, they go, oh yeah, I remember. We were led by God in the form of a pillar of fire. And now look, these people that are proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, they have the exact same thing. God is saying, look, follow these people. They represent me in this desert, just like I led you out of the wilderness. This is how God verifies, authenticates the church in the Gentile world. 
The Holy Spirit helps plant the new church, comes alongside the church to build and sustain the church as it grows. Then Jesus says something. He says, I am hated, you will be hated. I will be persecuted, you will be persecuted. I am leaving, but I will be back. But I am sending the Holy Spirit to be with you during the coming persecution. And part of the gifts that we receive as the Holy Spirit present is, number one, is our conviction of sin. That's exactly what it said in in the verse. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit brings judgment, brings conviction of sin. When you feel that in your heart, that part of you that says, man, I really messed up. Even when you know you're going to get away with it. Thank you, Mr. Holy Spirit. Appreciate that. That's him speaking to you. When you're wondering, is the Holy Spirit part of my life? The answer is yes. Now, we can squash the Holy Spirit. We can dampen the Holy Spirit. We can take ourselves far off that it's much more quiet. But the Holy Spirit still speaks to us in our hearts. The Holy Spirit also gives us our gifts. There's a whole list of spiritual gifts that are given to us as believers to help us on our mission for God. That is the person and the works of the Holy Spirit. Let's move on to part two, love and hate. I guess part three. I have it wrong here in my notes. Part three, love and hate. So the first part of the Upper Room Discourse, if we were to flip back to, uh, to chapter 14, has been about love and relationship. It's been a great message about love and relationship. John 14, 1 through 3. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Lord, my heart's troubled all the time. I appreciate you saying that. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That's a great message, isn't it? I'm leaving, but I'll be back. And I'm preparing a place for you. I'm not abandoning you. Go down to to, uh, to verse 15. It says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. There we're talking about the Holy Spirit right there. To be with you forever, the spirit of truth. I could use some truth in this world. Thank you, Jesus. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. What an amazing statement for Jesus to say. We all get to live together. I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved, will be loved. How many of us long to be loved? I think all of us do. Long to be loved, long to be accepted, long to not be alone. And Jesus says, I'm with you. I too will love them and show myself to them. So go to verse 14:27. We should have this on one of those rustic signs. Maybe we could find it at Hobby Lobby maybe on our coffee mugs. It says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that because I tell you, I'm I'm scared a lot. I appreciate you letting me know that I don't have to be afraid. Speaking of which, what's the cure for fear? What is it? It's right here in your Bible. It says love, right? Love. Love is the cure for fear. Love casts out fear. We're afraid. We need a little bit more love. That's what we need to ask for. 
In times of fear, we need to ask for love. It says, don't be troubled. I love you. I will be with you. I will send the Holy Spirit to be with you. I have my peace with you. 15.9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy, joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love, 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 love. Love, joy, peace. Love, joy, peace. Then we get to verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Can we not go back to the love part, Jesus? I like that part. I like the love, joy, peace part. I like that part. I like the living together part. What's this? He says, no, I'm hated and you will be hated. If you belong to the world, it would love you as your own. Wait a minute. If I'm finding love and appreciation in the world, it means I'm not with you. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. See, we can be loved by the world and hated by God. Right? That's Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. This is strong language. It's very strong language. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I think I did about three or four of those last week. says the Lord hates them. That's very strong language, isn't it? Zechariah chapter 8 verse 17 says, do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of this, declares the Lord. You can be loved by the world and hated by God, or you can be loved by God and hated by the world. That's it. That's the binary. There's no in-between. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, or sorry, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5 says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lover of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godlessness, or having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. And it leads to persecution. Last time we were we spoke about persecution. We'll just review it very quickly. Persecution is promised to the church. It's promised to the Christian. These words of Jesus are true. They are very true. If the only thing we were to know about the Bible was to read the book of John and read this section that you will be hated and you will be persecuted, it authenticates the book. If you're like, gosh, I don't know about this thing. Is this really true? This is true. John the Baptist was beheaded. Peter, James, and Andrew were crucified. Bartholomew was whipped and then crucified. 
James, son of Zebedee, was beheaded. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria until he was dead. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was stoned by order of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Philip was stoned to death. Stephen was stoned to death. Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, and Timothy were all martyred, and Paul had his head chopped off. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He was kicked out of the synagogue, had everything taken from him, was left destitute outside the walls of Jerusalem, and was probably beaten to death by a mob. Every day, 10 to 14 people are killed in the name of Christ, depending on which source you look at. Those are people that we record that were killed because they were Christians. Look around. Our church would be wiped out in a week. Every man, woman, and child here would be gone in one week if that persecution came to us. If what was happening in the larger world came here, we wouldn't last seven days. And quite frankly, most of the churches in America would. The average church in America is 70 people. One church a week killed because they are Christian. We should expect persecution, and the fear of persecution should not change how we live. I was reading, there's, um, there's several pastors in Canada who are facing years in prison for holding services during the lockdowns. There's one guy, uh, he was in the news a few weeks ago. He, uh, he's a Polish refugee. He's now a pastor in a church, and he recently was, was re-arrested uh, because uh, you know, when they had that, the trucker protest, he went out to tell those guys, don't be violent. He went out, the, the recording's there saying, hey, yes, you guys can protest, but no violence is what he was telling them. He was arrested. He's facing four years in prison. He's been arrested five times in the last two years. This is a quote from an article. It says, Palowski was taken to Calgary Remand Center where he alleges he was treated poorly. He said he was placed for a time in a small metal cage, not given water, and deprived of both his glasses and a Bible for several days. He was claimed he was strip-searched repeatedly. He spent many hours in solitary confinement and was made to sleep on cold concrete. That's in Canada today. That's not 100 years ago or thousands of miles away. That's just about eight hours north of here. John chapter 16, Jesus says, there's a reason why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this for a reason. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because you can bear. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit through the Word who is Christ. And we are guided by the Holy Spirit. But the takeaway is this. We cannot love life so much or the world so much or the things of the world so much that it creates a barrier between God and us. John 12, 25 says exactly this. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's it. All right, so we've talked about Pentecost. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about love and hate. We get to this last part. We'll pause for a minute. Seriously, this is not going to be pleasant. So if you guys want to go, you can get to lunch early. There's like five places within walking distance right now. Well, four now. Sorry, the, the four, one place closed. We, we seem to do that. We seem to lose restaurants. I don't, I don't know. We'll see who comes next. No? No takers? 
All right. So we're going to talk about master and slave. And like I said, I have a warning for you. The following words will be harsh. There are going to be some brutal imagery in here. And I've only heard one message like this in church, and I, not in a church that I attended, but I doubt that you guys have heard this either. These are biblical words, but they are not language we are comfortable with in America. So we're going to talk about master and slave. There are some tough truths about the Bible. Some tough truths. God does not ever outright condemn slavery in the Bible. He doesn't. He doesn't do it. If you were to flip over to, uh, to, uh, to Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, Jesus tells us how we're supposed to treat each other. He says, man, you're supposed to love me, love me above all, and then love each other as you love yourselves. These are the greatest commands. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And the thing is, we read that, and then we want God to continue. There are some things that we want to be in the Bible that aren't there. We would really like the Bible to condemn despotism or monarchy, especially sitting here as Americans. We would love for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to be canonized as Scripture, wouldn't we? But they're not. They are not in here. So when we read the story of Exodus, when we, we want Pharaoh to be punished, we want him to be punished for being a pagan dictator, right? That's what we want. We read about him. Well, yeah, he's a dictator. He has slaves. He's evil. Yeah, he deserves some punishment. You notice that the kingdom of Egypt didn't die? That didn't happen. You have to think that if Pharaoh had yielded right away and let the people of Abraham go, nothing would have changed in Egypt. Nothing. It would have continued on exactly as it was. And really, things continued on after the Jews left. If you go to um, the Wall of Seti II in the Temple of Karnak in Luxor in Egypt, it shows the rebellion of the Shasu. That's the Egyptian word. They used the Shasu of Yahweh to, to talk about the Israelites. It's the Egypt word for Canaanites, including the Israelites. And it shows their rebellion, their journey to Pi Ramses, and their crossing the Reed Sea. After the plagues, Egypt lived on and lives on today. It's a strange contrast, isn't it, when God has Jews who defile the Sabbath or who worship idols put to death. Guy had to be taken out of the camp and stoned to death for picking up sticks. On the Sabbath, there was a guy who died because he stumbled and touched the ark. Lot, though, Lot became part of the government of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was a respected guy, sat at the city gates on the council. And God still considered him righteous. He's a respected man who is part of the council, and he is still considered righteous by God. David a man after God's own heart. He becomes king after the first king of Israel. And Israel was given a king. Why? Because they asked. They asked to be ruled like the other nation states that surrounded them. Think about King Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't a Jew, but he was chosen by God. And he received testimony and prophecy from Daniel, Reshach, and Meshach, and Abednego. 
And we have to wonder why God didn't eliminate this pagan, idol-worshiping king and his government. Don't we? But the truth is that God gives us tons of room. He doesn't judge our culture and our social or our governing structures. He does hold nations to account. But the standard isn't what we want. The standard is very personal. If we flip back over to, to Matthew, it says, how are you treating people? Whatever structure you have, whether you have a monarchy, whether you have you know, a republic, whatever it is, you have democracy, you have slavery, you don't have slavery, whatever it is, how are you treating people in your structure? Are you abusing them? Do you love God or do you love idols? Do you seek justice and love mercy? That's the standard that he sets out. If you were to flip over to Isaiah chapter 1, it says, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. It's about right and wrong. It's about justice. It's about widows and orphans. How do you treat the people who cannot support themselves or contribute to society? Because that's not what we want the Bible to say. We want the Bible to have a bill of rights. We want enumerated powers and separation of powers. How about a, a book on taxes? How about a proverb about how taxation is theft? I think we could all get behind that. A chapter or two on how we should all have swords and shields and knives. That'd be fun church, wouldn't it? Clank, clank, clank. Instead, instead, Jesus tells a Roman centurion that he has the greatest faith, not only in all Jerusalem, but in all Israel. John the Baptist and Jesus hung out with tax collectors and simply told them to only collect what was owed. John the Baptist, when he met a bunch of soldiers, what did he say? He said, do right. Don't take more than what, what you're owed. Jesus paid the temple tax. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Right? John the Baptist knows the one thing he criticized Herod for was sexual immorality for marrying his brother's wife. But he never called him an illegitimate ruler. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested by the Romans. So then we get to this part for today. See, in our culture, the idea of owning another human being is repulsive. We reject that idea in our lives, in our homes, and in our history. And right now, we are tearing down statues of our founding fathers. Why? Because they were slave owners. God and Jesus never condone slavery. They never say it's okay. But they don't condemn it either. They always condemn abuse, though. Whatever the government or the structure we devise, God's standard remains the same. How are you treating your brothers and sisters? And they're all your brothers and sisters. And the truth is that slavery has been part of the human culture for thousands of years. Every culture on the planet has practiced slavery in one form or another. Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt. Daniel, Rashak, Meshach, and Abednego were slaves to Nebuchadnezzar. And I want to be clear. These are slaves, people purchased or kidnapped and owned by another person. Leviticus 25 
is one of these sections in the Bible. The section starts with a reminder of how the Egyptians treated them while they were slaves in Egypt. It says, remember God, remember you were slaves in Egypt. Then it goes on. It says, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, wait, sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children will be released and they will go back to their own clans and the property of their ancestors. <clears throat> then it says, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From you may, them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country. And they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and you can make them slaves for life. But you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. We still follow that pattern for our bankruptcy laws, by the way. See, they didn't have banks at this time. So if you had to borrow money, you would go and borrow from a person, a wealthy person. And if you couldn't pay it back, you were indentured to them. You became a slave to them until the next year of Jubilee for seven years. And if you wanted to stay, if you decided to stay as a slave, you would take your ear and you would nail it, put a hole in it. And that would be an indicator to everyone that you had chosen to remain as a servant. And Leviticus lays out the terms for that slavery. If you were to flip over and read the section over in Exodus, it even goes further and it says, hey, if while you're a slave, if you bring your wife and your children with you, then those go with you. But if while you're a slave, you attain a wife and children and all of that while you're a slave, then it's up to your master whether or not they go with you or not. There's a section in Exodus that bans slave trading. If you kidnap or someone and you sell them into slavery, you are to be put to death. That's Exodus 21, 16. It's uncomfortable, isn't it, to talk about people owning other people? It's very uncomfortable. But that Roman centurion, that guy that Jesus commands as having the greatest faith, is a slave owner. See, this is something that's happened. It happened about in the, in the 1300s in, in our Bibles because indentured servitude was the most common thing. So the translators started translating the word slave to the word servant. So when you read through your Bible, you're going to see slave sometimes, but most of the time you're going to see servant. It's a much more comfortable word. So if we go to chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, it says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking to help. And Lord, he said, My servant, that's not the word servant. It's the word slave. My slave lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my slave will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from east and west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go and let it be done just as you believed it would, and his slave was healed at that moment. That word is doulos in the Greek. It means slave. Your translation says servant, and it was translated that way, like I say, back in the 1300s. But that word is slave. 
It's 126 times in 118 verses of the New Testament the word doulos appears. The other word is kurios, means master or lord. The definition is he to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has power of deciding master, lord, the possessor and disposer of a thing, owner, doulos and kurios. So when we flip over to John chapter 13, or actually John chapter 15, it says, remember what I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. John 13, verses 12 through 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, you call me master, and rightly so, for that is what I am. You call me master, you call me owner, and that is right because that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no slave is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. See, when we commit ourselves to Christ, we should be nailing our ear to the post. We should be surrendering our will. See, we have tried it our own way, and we have ended up bankrupt. We have realized we cannot make it on our own. So Jesus, when he paid our debt, he paid it. He is our master. He purchased us, bought us at a price. We are his, not our own. And if you're going to borrow from someone, if you're going to end up enslaved by someone, Jesus is the guy you want to be owned by. Flip over to John chapter 15. It says, My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not chose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Jesus calls his slaves, the people he bought with his own blood. Jesus paid for us. He paid the debt that you and I owed. He rightfully purchased us. And he says, Even though I paid the price, even though I bought you, even though I purchased you, even though I own you, you are mine, but I call you friends. And Jesus says, here on earth, even though, even though I did all this, I call you friends and I share everything with you. I hold nothing back from you. I tell you everything. I share everything with you. He says, not only do I call you friends, not only do I share everything with you, I make a path for you. My Father, the Holy Spirit, and I make a home with you and I prepare a place for you. And in the new kingdom, you will no longer be called slaves. You will no longer be called friends, but I will share my inheritance with you. You will be counted as my brothers and sisters. Who does this? Who does this? Who pays the price, pays the debt of someone else, and then makes them an heir to their fortune? I triple dog dare you. I think they're probably having court this week. 
I dare you, go down to the courthouse. The first person you see being convicted of a crime, go and serve their sentence and pay their fine. Pay their restitution. Then write them into your will. Make them an equal with your kids, with your family, with your spouse, in your will. That's what Jesus said. He said, you stood guilty. You owed. I paid. And now, not only did I pay, but I'm making you a co-heir with me. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command, love each other. Our master, our Lord, our owner has given us a command, love each other. And that should change everything about how we live today. See, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's master, master, owner, owner, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, a slave who was purchased for a price does what the master commands. So why do we call him Lord and then disobey? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and put them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came and when the torrent struck the house, but could, uh, it struck the house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. See, if we were purchased... If we were bought, if we are owned, why do we not obey? Especially considering how our master treats us. He calls us friend, makes a home with us, shares with us, provides for us, makes a room for us, offers his inheritance to us, and yet we disobey. See, this should be a base shifting for every decision that we make. Everything we do should change. Who cares what I want? Who cares what I think? What does the master think? I am but a slave. Who cares what I think about politics or what I think about work or what I think about church? What does the master think? I was bought at a price. Is the one I call Lord and Master pleased with my work? Is the one I call Lord and Master pleased with how I treat my brothers and sisters? Is the one I call Lord and Master pleased with how I spent my time and my money? Is the one I call Lord and Master pleased with church today? Believe you me, I know. This rubs our American sensibilities raw, doesn't it? What about my rights? Slave has no rights. We are valuable property, though. We were bought with the flesh and blood of Christ. And if you mess with me, if you mess with any of us, you mess with the master. And he will hold whoever does that to account. See, we justify our wicked behavior because it's just me. I'm the only one I'm harming. It's harmless. It's between me and and no one. But that's not the truth. The truth is that we couldn't make our own body if we tried. You couldn't make yourself and you can't redeem yourself. Your body is not yours and neither is your soul. 
It was created by God the Father and paid for on the cross by Jesus. We are either slaves to sin or we are slaves to Christ. There is no middle ground. It's Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 23. This is, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. If you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know. Hard words today. But like I say, I'm hoping that it shifts our base. I'm hoping that it changes our focus. That when we go out tomorrow, that when we meet later on this afternoon, that when we go out, that we have a more God-centered view. That we think a little bit less of ourselves and we think a lot more of him who bought us. Let us pray. Father, we uh, just humble ourselves before you. We know that um, we are not worthy, but you paid anyway. You sent your son anyway. Father, so the sun rose again today, so you've rendered your opinion that we still have work to do. Father, we are seeking your will. Please give those words new meaning today. That when we call you Lord, when we call you Master, that we were willing to put ourselves aside to follow where you lead. That we're willing to execute the commands that you give us. Father, we just ask for your path, we ask for your light, we ask for your commands, and we ask for the will and the strength and the resources to do them, to do the things that you ask us to do, because we know what you have in store for us is good and right, and that will make the world a better place. So that's what we're seeking for this week. We still have people recovering from surgeries, and people still having to go through cancer treatments, and Father... We love all these folks that you have given us. We love all these people, and we want more time with them. We want their bodies to be well. We want them to be healed up. We want you to be glorified. That's what we're asking, Father, is we're lifting that up to you. So we just lift this time up to you. We lift up our lives to you that, uh, that you would be pleased. And if you are not pleased, that you would correct us. And we ask all of that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who paid it all. Let's go fellowship.